The Most Dangerous Superstition Written by Larkin Rose Narrated by Stephen Thomas Dedication This book is dedicated to two people. The first person who, because of reading this book, disobeys in order to harm someone else. And the person who, as a result, is not harmed. Preparing the Reader What you read in this book will, in all likelihood, go directly against what you have been taught by your parents and your teachers, what you have been told by the churches, the media, and the government, and much of what you, your family, and your friends have always believed. Nonetheless, it is the truth, as you will see if you allow yourself to consider the issue objectively. Not only is it the truth, it may also be the most important truth you will ever hear. More and more people are discovering this truth, but to do so, it is necessary to look past many preconceived assumptions and deeply ingrained superstitions, to set aside one's lifelong indoctrination, and to examine some new ideas fairly and honestly. If you do this, you will experience a dramatic change in how you view the world. It will almost certainly feel uncomfortable at first, but in the long run, it will be well worth the effort. And if enough people choose to see this truth and embrace it, not only will it drastically change the way those people see the world, it will drastically change the world itself for the better. But if such a simple truth could change the world, wouldn't we have already known about it? And wouldn't we have put it into practice long ago? If humans were purely a race of thinking, objective beings, Yes, but history shows that most human beings would literally rather die than objectively reconsider the belief systems that they were brought up in. The average man who reads in the newspaper about war, oppression, and injustice will wonder why such pain and suffering exists, and will wish for it to end. However, if it is suggested to him that his own beliefs are contributing to the misery, he will almost certainly dismiss such a suggestion without a second thought, and may even attack the one making the suggestion. So, reader, if your beliefs and superstitions, many of which you did not choose for yourself, but merely inherited as unquestioned hand-me-down beliefs, matter to you more than truth and justice, then please stop reading now and give this book to someone else. If, on the other hand, you are willing to question some of your long-held, preconceived notions if doing so might reduce the suffering of others? Then read this book, and then give it to someone else. Part 1. The Most Dangerous Superstition Starting with the Punchline How many millions have gazed upon the brutal horrors of history with its countless examples of man's inhumanity to man? and wondered aloud how such things could happen. The truth is, most people wouldn't want to know how it happens, because they themselves are religiously attached to the very belief that makes it possible. The vast majority of suffering and injustice in the world, today and spanning back thousands of years, can be directly attributed to a single idea. It's not greed or hatred, or any of the other emotions or ideas that are usually blamed for the evils of society. Instead, most of the violence, theft, 
assault and murder in the world is the result of a mere superstition, a belief which, though almost universally held, runs contrary to all evidence and reason. Though, of course, those who hold the belief do not see it that way. The punchline of this book is easy to express, albeit difficult for most people to accept or even calmly and rationally contemplate. The belief in authority, which includes all belief in government, is irrational and self-contradictory. It is contrary to civilization and morality, and constitutes the most dangerous, destructive superstition that has ever existed. Rather than being a force for order and justice, the belief in authority is the arch-enemy of humanity. Of course, nearly everyone is raised to believe the exact opposite, that obedience to authority is a virtue, at least in most cases, that respecting and complying with the laws of government is what makes us civilized, and that disrespect for authority leads only to chaos and violence. In fact, people have been so thoroughly trained to associate obedience with being good that attacking the concept of authority will sound, to most people, like suggesting there is no such thing as right and wrong, no need to abide by any standards of behavior, no need to have any morals at all. That is not what is being advocated here. Quite the opposite. Indeed, the reason the myth of authority needs to be demolished is precisely because there is a such thing as right and wrong. It does matter how people treat each other, and people should always strive to live moral lives, despite the constant authoritarian propaganda claiming otherwise. Having a respect for authority and having a respect for humanity are mutually exclusive and diametrically opposed. The reason to have no respect for the myth of authority is so that we can have a respect for humanity and justice. There is a harsh contrast between what we are taught is the purpose of authority to create a peaceful, civilized society and the real-world results of authority in action. Flip through any history book and you will see that most of the injustice and destruction that has occurred throughout the world was not the result of people breaking the law, but rather the result of people obeying and enforcing the laws of various governments. The evils that have been committed in spite of authority are trivial compared to the evils that have been committed in the name of authority. Nevertheless, children are still taught that peace and justice come from authoritarian control and that, despite the flagrant evils committed by authoritarian regimes around the world and throughout history, they are still morally obligated to respect and obey the current government of their own country. They are taught that doing as you are told is synonymous with being a good person, and that playing by the rules is synonymous with doing the right thing. On the contrary, being a moral person requires taking on the personal responsibility of judging right from wrong and following one's own conscience, the opposite of respecting and obeying authority. The reason it is so important that people understand this fact is the primary danger posed by the myth of authority is to be found not in the minds of the controllers in government, but in the minds of those being controlled. One nasty individual who loves to dominate others is a trivial threat to humanity unless a lot of other people view such domination as legitimate because it is achieved via the laws of government. The twisted mind of Adolf Hitler, by itself, posed little or no threat to humanity. 
It was the millions of people who viewed Hitler as authority and thus felt obligated to obey his commands and carry out his orders, who actually caused the damage done by the Third Reich. In other words, the problem is not that evil people believe in authority. The problem is that basically good people believe in authority, and as a result, end up advocating or even committing acts of aggression, injustice, and oppression. Even murder. The average statist, one who believes in government, while lamenting in all the ways in which authority has been used as a tool for evil, even in his own country, will still insist that it is possible for government to be a force for good, and will still imagine that authority can and must provide the path to peace and justice. People falsely assume that many of the useful and legitimate things that benefit human society require the existence of government. It is good, for example, for people to organize for mutual defense, to work together to achieve common goals, to find ways to cooperate and get along peacefully, to come up with agreements and plans that better allow human beings to exist and thrive in a mutually beneficial and non-violent state of civilization. But that is not what government is. Despite the fact that governments always claim to be acting on behalf of the people and the common good, the truth is that government, by its very nature, is always in direct opposition to the interests of mankind. Authority is not a noble idea that sometimes goes wrong, nor is it a basically valid concept that is sometimes corrupted. From top to bottom, from start to finish, the very concept of authority itself is anti-human and horribly destructive. Of course, most people will find such an assertion hard to swallow. Isn't government an essential part of human society? Isn't it the mechanism which civilization is made possible? Because it forces us imperfect humans to behave in an orderly, peaceful manner? Isn't the enacting of common rules and laws what allows us to get along? to settle disputes in a civilized manner, and to trade and otherwise interact in a fair, non-violent way. Haven't we always heard that if not for the rule of law, and a common respect for authority, we would be no better than a bunch of stupid violent beasts living in a state of perpetual conflict and chaos? Yes, we have been told that, and no, none of it is true. But trying to disentangle our minds from age-old lies, trying to distill the truth out of a jungle of deeply entrenched falsehoods, can be exceedingly difficult, not to mention uncomfortable. Overview In the following pages, the reader will be taken through several stages, in order to fully understand why the belief in authority truly is the most dangerous superstition in the history of the world. First, the concept of authority will be distilled down to its most basic essence, so it can be defined and examined objectively. In Part 2, it will be shown that the concept itself is fatally flawed, that the underlying premise of all government is utterly incompatible with logic and morality. In fact, it will be shown that government is purely a religious belief, a faith-based acceptance of a superhuman mythological entity that has never existed and will never exist. The reader is not expected to accept such a startling claim without ample evidence and sound reasoning, which will be provided. 
In part three, it will be shown why the belief in authority, including all belief in government, is horrendously dangerous and destructive. Specifically, it will be shown how the belief in authority dramatically impacts both the perceptions and the actions of various categories of people, leading literally millions of otherwise good, peaceful people to condone or commit acts of violent, immoral aggression. In fact, everyone who believes in government does this, though the vast majority do not realize it and would vehemently deny it. Finally, in part four, the reader will be given a glimpse into what life without the belief in authority could look like. Contrary to the usual assumption that an absence of government would mean chaos and destruction, it will be shown that when the myth of authority is abandoned, much will change, but much will also stay the same. It will be shown why, rather than the belief in government being conducive to and necessary for a peaceful society, as nearly everyone has been taught, the belief is by far the biggest obstacle to a mutually beneficial organization, cooperation, and peaceful coexistence. In short, it will be shown why true civilization can and will exist only after the myth of authority has been eradicated. Identifying the Enemy From early childhood we are taught to submit to the will of authority, to obey the edicts of those who, in one way or another, have acquired positions of power and control. From the beginning, the goodness of a child is graded, whether explicitly or implicitly, first by how well he obeys his parents, then by how well he obeys his teachers, and then by how well he obeys the laws of government. Whether implied or stated, society is saturated with the message that obedience is a virtue and that good people are the ones who do what authority tell them to do. As a result of that message, the concepts of morality and obedience have become so muddled in most people's minds that any attack on the notion of authority will, to most people, feel like an attack on morality itself. Any suggestion that government is inherently illegitimate will sound like suggesting that everyone should behave as uncaring, vicious animals, living life by the code of survival of the fittest. The trouble is, the average person's belief system rests upon a hodgepodge of vague, often contradictory, concepts and assumptions, terms such as crime, law and legislation, leaders and citizens, are often used by people who have never rationally examined such concepts. To understand the nature of authority and government, we must begin by precisely defining what those terms mean. What is this thing we call government? It is an organization that tells people what to do, but that alone does not provide a complete definition, because all sorts of other individuals and organizations that we do not call government also tell people what to do. Government, however, does not simply suggest a request. It commands. Then again, advertisers and preachers could also be said to give commands but they are not considered government. Unlike the commands of preachers and advertisers, the commands of government are backed by the threat of punishment, the use of force against those who do not comply. But even that does not give us a complete definition, because street thugs and bullies also enforce their commands, but no one refers to them as government. The distinguishing feature of government is that it is thought to have the moral right to give and enforce commands,
Its commands are called laws, and disobeying its commands is called crime. In short, the defining factor which makes something government is the perceived legitimacy and righteousness of the power and control it exerts over others. In other words, its authority. Authority can be summed up as the right to rule. It is not merely the ability to forcibly control others, which to some extent nearly everyone possesses. It is the supposed moral right to forcibly control others. What distinguishes a street gang from government is how they are perceived by the people they control. The trespasses, robbery, extortion, assault, and murder committed by common thugs are perceived by almost everyone as being immoral, unjustified, and criminal. Their victims may comply with their demands, but not out of any feeling of moral obligation to obey, merely out of fear. If the intended victims of a street gang thought they could resist without any danger to themselves, they would do so without the slightest feeling of guilt. They do not perceive the street thug to be any sort of legitimate, rightful ruler. They do not imagine him to be authority. The loot the thug collects is not referred to as taxes, and the threats are not called laws. The commands issued by those who wear the label of government, on the other hand, are perceived very differently by most of those whom the commands are aimed. Most people perceive the power and control that the lawmakers in government exert over everyone else to be valid and legitimate, legal and good. Most comply with such commands by obeying the law, and who surrender their money by paying taxes do not do so merely out of fear of punishment if they disobey, but also out of a feeling of duty to obey. No one takes pride in being robbed by a street gang, but many wear the label of law-abiding taxpayer as a badge of honor. This is due entirely to how the obedient perceive the ones giving them commands. If the controllers are perceived as authority, then by definition they are seen as having the moral right to give such commands, which in turn implies a moral obligation on the part of the people to obey those commands. To label oneself a law-abiding taxpayer is to brag about one's loyal obedience to government. In the past, some churches have claimed the right to punish heretics and other sinners. But in the Western world today, the concept of authority is almost always linked to government. In fact, in this day and age, each term implies the other. Authority supposedly derives from the decree's laws of government, and government is the organization imagined to have the right to rule, i.e. authority. It is essential to differentiate between a command being justified based upon the situation and being justified based on who gave the command. Only the latter is the type of authority being addressed in this book, though the term is occasionally used in another sense which tends to muddle the distinction. When, for example, someone asserts that he had the authority to stop a mugger to get an old lady's purse back, or says he had the authority to chase trespassers off of his property. He is not claiming to possess any special rights that others do not possess. He is simply saying that he believes that certain situations justify giving orders or using force. In contrast, the concept of government is about certain people having some special right to rule, and that idea, the notion that some people as a result of elections or other political rituals, 
for example, have the moral right to control others, in situations where most people would not, is the concept being addressed here. Only those in government are thought to have the right to enact laws. Only they are thought to have the right to impose taxes. Only they are thought to have the right to wage wars, to regulate certain matters, to grant licenses for various activities, and so on. When the belief in authority is discussed in this book, that is the meaning being referred to, the idea that some people have the moral right to forcibly control others, and that, consequently, those others have the moral obligation to obey. It should be stressed that authority is always in the eye of the beholder, if the one being controlled believes that the one controlling him has the right to do so, then the one being controlled sees the controller as authority. If the one being controlled does not perceive the control to be legitimate, then the controller is not viewed as authority, but is seen simply as a bully or a thug. The tentacles of the belief in authority reach into every aspect of human life, but the common denominator is always the perceived legitimacy of the control it exerts over others. The issue here is not just the misuse of authority, or an argument about good government versus bad government, but an examination of the fundamental underlying concept of authority. Whether an authority is seen as an absolute, or having conditions or limits upon it, may have a bearing on how much damage that authority does but it has no bearing on whether the underlying concept is rational. The U.S. Constitution, for example, is imagined to have created an authority which, at least in theory, had a severely restricted right to rule. Nonetheless, it still sought to create an authority with the right to do things, e.g. tax and regulate, which the average citizen has no right to do on his own. Though it pretended to give the right to rule only over certain specific matters, it still claimed to bestow some authority upon a ruling class, and as such, is just as much a target of the following criticism of authority as the authority of a supreme dictator would be. The term authority is sometimes used in ways that have nothing to do with the topic of this book. For example, one who is an expert in some field is often referred to as an authority. Likewise, some relationships resemble authority, but do not involve any right to rule. The employer-employee relationship is often viewed as there is a boss and an underlying. However, no matter how domineering or overbearing an employer may be, he cannot conscript workers or imprison them for disobedience. The only power he really has is the power to terminate the arrangement by firing the employee and the employee has the same power because he can quit. The same is true of other relationships that may resemble authority, such as a craftsman and his apprentice, a martial arts sensei and his pupil, or a trainer and the athlete he trains. Such scenarios involve arrangements based on mutual, voluntary agreement, in which either side is free to opt out of the arrangement. Such a relationship where one person voluntarily allows another to direct his actions in the hopes that he will benefit from the other's knowledge or skill is not the type of authority that is the subject of this book. No such thing. Most people believe that government is necessary, though they also acknowledge that authority often leads to corruption and abuse. 
They know that government can be inefficient, unfair, unreasonable, and oppressive, but they still believe that authority can be a force for good. What they fail to realize is that the problem is not just that government produces inferior results, or that authority is often abused. The problem is that the concept itself is utterly irrational and self-contradictory. It is nothing but a superstition, devoid of any logical or evidentiary support, which people hold only as a result of a constant cult-like indoctrination, designed to hide the logical absurdity of the concept. It is not a matter of degree or how it is used. The truth is that authority does not and cannot exist at all. And failure to recognize that fact has led billions of people to believe things and do things that are horrendously destructive. There can be no such thing as good authority. In fact, there is no such thing as authority at all. As strange as that may sound, it can easily be proven. In short, government does not exist. It never has and it never will. The politicians are real. The soldiers and police who enforce the politicians' will are real. The buildings they inhabit are real. The weapons they wield are very real. But their supposed authority is not. And without that authority, without the right to do what they do, they are nothing but a gang of thugs. The term government implies legitimacy. It means the exercise of authority over a certain people or place. The way people speak of those in power, calling their commands laws, referring to disobedience to them as crime, and so on, implies the right of government to rule, and a corresponding obligation on the part of its subjects to obey. Without the right to rule, authority, there is no reason to call the entity government, and all of the politicians and their mercenaries become utterly indistinguishable from a giant organized crime syndicate. Their laws no more valid than the threats of muggers and carjackers. And that, in reality, is what every government is. An illegitimate gang of thugs, thieves, and murderers, masquerading as a rightful ruling body. The reason the terms government and authority appear inside quotation marks throughout this book is because there is never a legitimate right to rule. So government and authority can never actually exist. In this book, such terms refer only to the people and gangs erroneously imagined to have the right to rule. All mainstream political discussion, all debate about what should be legal and illegal, who should be put into power, what national policy should be, how government should handle various issues, all of it is utterly irrational and a complete waste of time, as it is all based on the false premise that one person can have the right to rule another. That authority can even exist. The entire debate about how authority should be used and what government should do is exactly as useful as debating how Santa Claus should handle Christmas. But it is infinitely more dangerous. On the bright side, removing that danger, the biggest threat that humanity has ever faced, in fact, does not require changing the fundamental nature of man or converting all hatred to love or performing any other drastic alteration to the state of the universe. Instead, it requires only that people recognize and then let go of one particular superstition, 
one irrational lie that almost everyone has been taught to believe. In one sense, most of the world's problems could be solved overnight if everyone did something akin to giving up the belief in Santa Claus. Any idea or proposed solution to a problem that depends upon the existence of government, and that includes absolutely everything within the realm of politics, is inherently invalid. To use an analogy, two people could engage in a useful, rational discussion about whether nuclear power or hydroelectric dams are the better way to produce electricity for their town. But if someone suggested that a better option would be to generate electricity using magic pixie dust, his comments would be and should be dismissed as ridiculous. Because real problems cannot be solved by mythical entities, Yet, almost all modern discussion about societal problems is nothing but an argument about which type of magic pixie dust will save humanity. All political discussion rests upon an unquestioned but false assumption, which everyone takes on faith simply because they see and hear everyone else repeating the myth. The notion that there can be such a thing as legitimate government. The problem with popular misconceptions is just that. They are popular. When any belief, even the most ridiculous, illogical belief, is held by most people, it will not feel unreasonable to the believers. Continuing in that belief will feel easy and safe, while questioning it will be uncomfortable and very difficult, if not impossible. Even abundant evidence of the horrendously destructive power of the myth of authority, on a nearly incomprehensible level, and stretching back for thousands of years, has not been enough to make more than a handful of people even begin to question the fundamental concept. And so, believing themselves to be enlightened and wise, human beings continue to stumble into one colossal disaster after another, as a result of their inability to shake off the most dangerous superstition, the belief in authority. Offshoots of the Superstition there is a large collection of terminology that grows out of the concept of authority. What all such terms have in common is that they imply a certain legitimacy to one group of people forcibly controlling another group. Here are just a few examples. Government. As mentioned before, government is simply the term used for an organization or group of people imagined to possess the right to rule. Many other terms, describing parts of government, such as president, congressmen, judge, and legislature, reinforce the supposed legitimacy of the ruling class. Law. The terms law and legislation have very different connotations from the words threat and command. The difference, again, depends upon whether the ones using and imposing such laws are imagined to have the right to do so. If a street gang issues commands to everyone in its neighborhood, no one calls such commands laws. But if government issues commands through the legislative process, nearly everyone calls them laws. In truth, every authoritarian law is the command backed by the threat of retaliation against those who do not comply. Whether it is a law against committing murder or against building a deck without a permit, it is neither a suggestion nor a request, but a command backed by the threat of violence. Whether in the form of forced confiscation of property, i.e. fines, or the kidnapping of a human being, i.e. imprisonment, 
What might be called extortion if done by the average citizen is called taxation when done by people who are imagined to have the right to rule. What would normally be seen as harassment, assault, kidnapping, and other offenses are seen as regulation and law enforcement when carried out by those claiming to represent authority. Of course, using the term law to describe the inherent properties of the universe, such as the laws of physics and mathematics, has nothing to do with the concept of authority. Furthermore, there is another concept called natural law, which is very different from statutory law, i.e. legislation. The concept of natural law is that there are standards of right and wrong intrinsic to humanity that do not depend upon human authority, and that in fact supersede all human authority, though that concept was the topic of many discussions in the not-too-distant past. It is rare to hear Americans using the term law in such a context today. And that concept is not what is meant by law in this book. Crime. A derivative of the concept of law is the concept of crime. The phrase committing a crime obviously has a negative connotation. The notion that breaking the law is morally wrong implies that the command being disobeyed is inherently legitimate based solely upon who gave the command. If a street gang tells a store owner, give us half of your profits or we will hurt you, no one would consider the store owner a criminal if he resisted such extortion. But if the same demand is made by those wearing the label of government, with the demand being called law and taxes, then that very same store owner would be viewed by almost everyone as a criminal if he refused to comply. The terms crime and criminal do not, by themselves, even hint at what law is being disobeyed. It is a crime to slowly drive through a red light in an empty intersection. And it is a crime to murder one's neighbors. A hundred years ago, it was a crime to teach a slave to read. In 1940s Germany, it was a crime to hide Jews from the SS. In Pennsylvania, it is a crime to sleep in or on top of a refrigerator outside. Literally committing a crime means disobeying the commands of politicians. And a criminal is anyone who does so. Again, such terms have an obviously negative connotation. Most people do not want to be called a criminal, and they mean it as an insult if they call someone else a criminal. Again, this implies that the authority issuing and enforcing the laws has the right to do so. Lawmakers There is a strange paradox involved in the concept of lawmakers, in that they are perceived to have the right to give commands, impose taxes, regulate behavior, and otherwise coercively control people, but only if they do so via the legislative process. The people in government, legislators, are seen as having the right to rule but only if they exert their supposed authority by way of certain accepted political rituals. When they do, the lawmakers are then imagined to have the exclusive right to give commands and hire people to enforce them, a right no other individual possesses. To put it another way, the general public honestly imagines that morality is different for lawmakers than it is for everyone else. Demanding money under the threat of violence is a moral theft when most people do it, but is seen as taxation when the politicians do it. Bossing people around and forcibly controlling their actions is seen as harassment, intimidation, and assault when most people do it.
but is seen as regulation in law enforcement when the politicians do it. They are called lawmakers rather than threat makers because their commands, if done via certain legislative procedures, are seen as inherently legitimate. In other words, they are seen as authority, and obedience to their legislative commands is seen as a moral imperative. Law Enforcement One of the most common examples of authority, which many people see on a daily basis, wears the label of police or law enforcement. The behavior of law enforcers and the way they are regarded and treated by others shows quite plainly that they are viewed not simply as people, but as representatives of an entity called authority, to which very different standards of morality are believed to apply. Suppose, for example, someone was driving a car without wearing a seatbelt. If another average citizen noticed that, and forced the driver to stop and demanded a large sum of money from him, the driver would be outraged. It would be viewed as extortion, harassment, and possibly assault and kidnapping. But when one claiming to act on behalf of government does the exact same thing, by flashing his lights and chasing the person down if he doesn't stop, and then issuing a ticket, such actions are viewed by most as being perfectly legitimate. In a very real sense, the people who wear badges and uniforms are not viewed as mere people by everyone else. They are viewed as the arm of an abstract thing called authority. As a result, the properness of police officer behavior and the righteousness of their actions are measured by a far different standard than is the behavior of everyone else. They are judged by how well they enforce the law rather than whether their individual actions conform to the moral standards of right and wrong that apply to everyone else. The difference is voiced in the law enforcers themselves, who defend their actions by saying such things as, I don't make the law, I just enforce it. Clearly, they expect to be judged only by how they faithfully carry out the will of the lawmakers, rather than by whether they believe like civilized, rational human beings. Countries and Nations The concepts of law and crime are obvious offshoots of the concepts of government and authority, but many other words in the English language are either changed by the belief in authority or exist entirely because of that belief. A country, or a nation for example, is purely a political concept. The line around a country is, by definition, the line defining the area over which one particular authority claims the right to rule, which distinguishes that location from the areas over which other authorities claim the right to rule. Geographical locations are, of course, very real, but the term country does not refer only to a place. It always refers to a political jurisdiction, another term stemming from the belief in authority. When people speak of loving their country, they are rarely capable of even defining what that term means. But ultimately, the only thing the word country can mean is not the place, or the people, or any abstract principle or concept, but merely the turf a certain gang claims the right to rule. In light of that fact, the concept of loving one's country is a rather strange idea. It expresses little more than a psychological attachment to the other subjects who are controlled by the very same ruling class, which is not at all what most people envision when they feel national loyalty and patriotism. People may feel love for a certain culture, or a certain location and the people who live there, 
or to some philosophical ideal, and mistake that for love of country. But ultimately, a country is simply the area that a particular government claims the right to rule. That is what defines the borders, and it is those borders which define the country. Attempting to rationalize the irrational, people who consider themselves educated, open-minded, and progressive do not want to think of themselves as slaves of a master, or even the subject of a ruling class. Because of this, much rationalizing and obfuscating has been done in an attempt to deny the fundamental nature of government as a ruling class. A lot of verbal gymnastics, misleading terminology and mythology have been manufactured to try to obscure the true relationship between governments and their subjects. This mythology is taught to children as civics, even though most of it is completely illogical and flies in the face of all evidence. The following covers a few of the popular types of propaganda used to obfuscate the nature of authority. The Myth of Consent In the modern world, slavery is almost universally condemned. But the relationship of a perceived authority to his subject is very much the relationship of a slave-master-owner to a slave-property. Not wanting to admit that and not wanting to condone what amounts to slavery, those who believe in authority are trained to memorize and repeat blatantly inaccurate rhetoric designed to hide the true nature of the situation. One example of this is the phrase, Consent of the governed. There are two basic ways in which people can interact, by mutual agreement or by one person using threats of violence to force his will upon another. The first can be labeled consent, both sides willingly and voluntarily agreeing to what is to be done. The second can be labeled governing, one person controlling another. Since these two, consent and governing, are opposites, the concept of consent of the governed is a contradiction. If there is mutual consent, it is not government. If there is governing, there is no consent. Some will claim that a majority, or the people as a whole, have given their consent to be ruled, even if many individuals have not. But such an argument turns the concept of consent on its head. No one, individually or as a group, can give consent for something to be done to someone else. That is simply not what consent means. It defies logic to say, I give my consent for you to be robbed. Yet that is the basis of the cult of democracy, the notion that a majority can give consent on behalf of a minority. That is not consent of the governed. It is forcible control of the governed with the consent of a third party. Even if someone were silly enough to actually tell someone else, I agree to let you forcibly control me. The moment the controller must force the controlee to do something, there is obviously no longer consent. Prior to that moment, there is no governing, only voluntary cooperation. Expressing the concept more precisely exposes its inherent schizophrenia. I agree to let you force things upon me, whether I agree to them or not. But in reality, no one ever agrees to let those in government do whatever they want. So in order to fabricate consent where there is none, believers in authority add another, even more bizarre step to the mythology. The notion of implied consent. 
The claim is that, by merely living in a town, or state, or country, one is agreeing to abide by whatever rules happen to be issued by the people who claim to have the right to rule that town, state, or country. The idea is that, if someone does not like the rules, he is free to leave the town, state, or country altogether, and that if he chooses not to leave, that constitutes giving his consent to be controlled by the rulers of that jurisdiction. Though it is constantly parroted as gospel, the idea defies common sense. It makes no more sense than a carjacker stopping a driver on Sunday and telling him, By driving a car in this neighborhood on Sunday, you are agreeing to give me your car. One person obviously cannot decide what counts as someone else agreeing to something. An agreement is when two or more people communicate a mutual willingness to enter into some arrangement. Simply being born somewhere is not agreeing to anything. Nor is living in one's own house when some king or politician has declared it to be within the realm he rules. It is one thing for someone to say, If you want to ride in my car, you may not smoke. Or, You can come into my house only if you take your shoes off. It is quite another to try to tell other people what they can do on their own property. Whoever has the right to make the rules for that particular place is, by definition, the owner of that place. That is the basis of the idea of private property, that there can be an owner who has the exclusive right to decide what is done with and on that property. The owner of a house has the right to keep others out of it and, by extension, the right to tell visitors what they can and cannot do as long as they are in the house. And that sheds some light on the underlying assumption behind the idea of implied consent. To tell someone that his only valid choices are to either leave the country or to abide by whatever commands the politicians issue logically implies that everything in the country is the property of the politicians. If a person can spend year after year paying for his home, or even building it himself, and his choices are still to either obey the politicians or get out, that means that his house and the time and effort he invested in the house are the property of the politicians, and for one person's time and effort to rightfully belong to another, is the definition of slavery. That is exactly what the implied consent theory means. That every country is a huge slave plantation, and that everything and everyone there is the property of the politicians. And, of course, the master does not need the consent of his slave. Believers in government never explain how it is that a few politicians could have acquired the right to unilaterally claim exclusive ownership of thousands of square miles of land, where other people were already living as their territory, to rule and exploit as they see fit. It would be no different from a lunatic saying, I hereby declare North America to be my rightful domain, so anyone living here has to do whatever I say, and if you don't like it, you can leave. There is also a practical problem with the obey or get out attitude, which is that getting out would only relocate the individual to some other giant slave plantation, a different country. The end result is that everyone on earth is a slave, with the only choice being which master to live under. This completely rules out actual freedom. More to the point, that is not what consent means. 
the belief that politicians own everything is demonstrated even more dramatically in the concept of immigration laws. The idea that a human being needs permission from politicians to set foot anywhere in an entire country, the notion that it can be a crime for someone to step across an invisible line from one authoritarian jurisdiction to another, implies that the entire country is the property of the ruling class. If a citizen is not allowed to hire an illegal alien, is not allowed to trade with him, is not even allowed to invite an illegal into his home, then that individual citizen owns nothing, and the politicians own everything. Not only is the theory of implied consent logically flawed, but it also obviously does not describe reality. Any government that had the consent of its subjects would not need and would not have law enforcers. Enforcement happens only if someone does not consent to something. Anyone with their eyes open can see that government, on a regular basis, does things to a lot of people against their will. To be aware of the myriad of tax collectors, beat cops, inspectors and regulators, border guards, narcotics agents, prosecutors, judges, soldiers, and all the other mercenaries of the state, and to still claim that government does what it does with the consent of the governed, is utterly ridiculous. Each individual, if he is at all honest with himself, knows that those in power do not care whether he consents to abide by their laws. The politicians' orders will be carried out, by brute force if necessary, with or without any individual's consent. More Mythology In addition to the myth of consent of the governed, other political sayings and dogmatic rhetoric are often repeated, despite being completely inaccurate. For example, in the United States, people are taught and faithfully repeat such ideas as we are the government, and the government works for us, and the government represents us. Such aphorisms are blatantly and obviously untrue, despite the fact that they are constantly parroted by the rulers and subjects alike. One of the most bizarre and delusional but very common claims is that we the people are the government. School children are taught to repeat this absurdity, even though everyone is fully aware that the politicians issue commands and demands, and everyone else either complies or is punished. In the United States, there is a ruling class and a subject class, and the differences between them are many and obvious. One group commands, the other obeys. One group demands huge sums of money, the other group pays. One group tells the other group where they can live, where they can work, what they can eat, what they can drink, what they can drive, who they can work for, what work they can do, and so on. One group takes and spends trillions of dollars of what the other group earns. One group consists entirely of economic parasites, while the efforts of the other group produce all the wealth. In this system, it is patently obvious who commands and who obeys. The people are not the government, by any stretch of the imagination, and it requires a profound denial to believe otherwise. But other myths are also used to try to make that lie sound rational. For example, it is also claimed that government works for us. It is our servant. 
Again, such a statement does not even remotely match the obvious reality of the situation. It is little more than cult mantra, a delusion intentionally programmed into the populace in order to twist their view of reality. And most people never even question it. Most never wonder, if government works for us, if it is our employee, why does it decide how much we pay it? Why does our employee decide what it will do for us? Why does our employee tell us how to live our lives? Why does our employee demand our obedience for whatever arbitrary commands it issues, sending armed enforcers after us if we disobey? It is impossible for government to ever be the servant. Because of what government is, to put it in simple, personal terms, if someone can boss you around and take your money, he is not your servant. And if he cannot do those things, he is not government. However limited, government is the organization thought to have the right to forcibly control the behavior of its subjects via laws, rendering the popularly accepted rhetoric about public servants completely ridiculous. To imagine that a ruler could ever be the servant of those whom he rules is patently absurd. Yet that impossibility is spouted as indisputable gospel in civics classes. An even more prevalent lie, used to try to hide the master-slave relationship between government and the public, is the notion of representative government. The claim is that people, by electing certain individuals into positions of power, are choosing their leaders and that those in office are merely representing the will of the people. Again, not only does this claim not at all match reality, but the underlying abstract theory is inherently flawed as well. In the real world, so-called representative governments are constantly doing things their subjects do not want them to do. Increasing taxes, engaging in warmongering, selling off power and influence to whoever gives them the most money, and so on. Every taxpayer can easily think of examples of things funded with his money that he objects to. Whether it be handouts to huge corporations, handouts to certain individuals, government actions that infringe on individual rights, or just the overall wasteful, corrupt, inefficient bureaucratic machine of government. There is no one who can honestly say that government does everything that he wants and nothing that he does not want. Even in theory, the concept of representative government is inherently flawed, because government cannot possibly represent the people as a whole unless everyone wants exactly the same thing, because different people want government to do different things. Government will always be going against the will of at least some of the people. Even if a government did exactly what the majority of its subjects wanted, which never actually happens, it would not be serving the people as a whole. It would be forcibly victimizing smaller groups on behalf of larger groups. Furthermore, the one who represents someone else cannot have more rights than the one he represents. For example, if one person has no right to break into his neighbor's house and steal his valuables, then he also has no right to designate a representative to do that for him. To represent someone is to act on his behalf, and a true representative can only do what the person he represents has the right to do. But in the case of government, the people who the politicians claim to represent have no right to do anything that the politicians do.
impose taxes, enact laws, etc. Average citizens have no right to forcibly control the choices of their neighbors, to tell them how to live their lives, and punish them if they disobey. So when government does such things, it is not representing anyone or anything but itself. Interestingly, even those who talk about representative government refuse to accept any personal responsibility for actions taken by those for whom they voted. If their candidate of choice enacts a harmful law, or raises taxes, or wages war, the voters never feel the same guilt or shame they would feel if they themselves had personally done such things, or hired or instructed someone else to do such things. This fact demonstrates that even the most enthusiastic voters do not actually believe the rhetoric about representative government, and do not view politicians as their representatives. The terminology does not match reality, and the only purpose for the rhetoric is to obfuscate the fact that the relationship between every government and its subjects is the same as the relationship between a master and a slave. One master may whip his slaves less severely than another. One master may allow his slaves to keep more of what they produce. One master may take better care of his slaves, but none of that changes the basic underlying nature of the master-slave relationship. The one with the right to rule is the master. The one with the obligation to obey is the slave. And that is true even when people choose to describe the situation using inaccurate rhetoric and deceptive euphemisms, such as representative government consent of the governed, and will of the people. The entire notion of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, while it makes nice feel-good political rhetoric, is a logical impossibility. A ruling class cannot serve or represent those it rules any more than a slave owner can serve or represent his slaves. The only way he could do so is by ceasing to be a slave owner, by freeing his slaves, Likewise, the only way a ruling class could become a servant of the people is by ceasing to be a ruling class, by relinquishing all of its power. Government cannot serve the people unless it ceases to be government. Another example of a rational status doctrine is the concept of rule of law. The idea is that rule by mere men is bad, because it serves those with a malicious lust for power, while the rule of law, as the theory goes, is all about objective, reasonable rules being imposed upon humanity equally. A moment's thought reveals the absurdity of this myth. Despite the fact that the law is often spoken of as some wholly infallible set of rules spontaneously flowing from the nature of the universe, in reality, the law is simply a collection of commands issued and enforced by the people in government. There would be a difference between rule of law and rule of men only if the so-called laws were written by something other than men 